back, uh, not too many years ago. Um, I got I got quite sick. Uh, it's the point where I was couchbound for about uh, three weeks, and uh, of all the things I could have done with my time, uh, like going to the doctor, for instance, um, I decided to go down a YouTube rabbit hole and become an expert on Star Wars. Um, now. This meant that I was spending hours uh, watching explainer videos on the lore and the language and the technology and the different kinds of force users. Uh, and the deeper I got, uh, honestly, the more interesting it became. Um, I started making connections across the saga that no grown man should be making. Um, but I will say, to impress you, that in some circles, I am known as basically an expert in Star Wars. Um, so, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, I, I basically became immersed in this world all of a sudden. Uh, and because of this, I now know that fear leads to anger, and anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. And um, I know that I have to keep going in tough situations because it's do or do not. There is no try. Um, so when I watch Star Wars, whether it be the TV programs or the movies, um, it's not just silly laser swords and spaceships and scary space asthma for me. It's actually loaded with a lot of deep meaning. It is a very deep experience for me to, to watch a Star Wars media uh, product. Um, so you can imagine when, when Luke dies at the end of The Last Jedi, and he's looking out and he's seeing the twin sons just like he did in the first time we met him in 1977, just, just got shivers. And, and when he appears at the end of the season finale of The Mandalorian, honestly, the Star Wars community was shook. And uh, we had reaction, hundreds of reaction videos of grown men crying, literally sobbing as they see peak performance Luke Skywalker in the ways that they always dreamed they would. It was, it was quite amazing. So what some people dismiss cynically, I will have to say, um, as fan service, I claim as deeply textured layers of narrative meaning, this is the way. Now, um, a, lot of, a lot of us actually read the Bible like Star Wars haters. We don't really enter into the world. Um, and because of this, we actually miss layers of meaning. The idea with the Bible is that we don't just think about it, we think with it. Um, we are there to listen properly, to position ourselves within its interpretive world. The idea is that we are under the text, we're not above it. It's the idea that the Bible is God's word as meditation literature. And because it's meditation literature, it is the place where we actually meet God. In Luke 8, uh, Jesus tells uh, the parable of the sower. And it's uh, about a man who goes and scatters his seed on different types of ground. Uh, and he... Um, as he's scattering on different types of ground, he's getting different responses from the seed as it grows. And so it grows better on some ground than others. Uh, and he explains this parable at the end and says, this is actually a picture of what happens when we hear God's word. And the end goes like this. He says, 
As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And then it goes on to say, take care then how you hear. And that passage alone is worth chewing over. So what I'm really saying is God speaks through the Bible. And that's actually quite a big call. Um, If you're anything like me, you've gone through a few different phases of Bible reading. Um, And the first phase I really went through was the youth group phase of treating the Bible like a collection of fortune cookies. Um, And if I just plucked each verse out, it could speak to me individually. And this is a good start. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But it's definitely the type of reading of the Bible where the Bible's greatest hits, they really steal the show. So we'll have something like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That is one of the all-time greatest hits of the Bible, and it's really great to the point where you can put it uh, into something like a desktop wallpaper really nicely, like the one I've made here, and it really works because it's one of the greatest hits. The problem is, is that not all Bible verses fit as nicely into this mode of taking chunks out as Jeremiah 29, 11. For instance, the uh, previous chapter in Jeremiah 28 has a completely different verse, which I have very helpfully put into the same desktop wallpaper for you to see. And it reads something like this. I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. Yeah, really not the same effect. I wouldn't put that on a crochet pillow or uh, give it to your grandma. This is, a, this is a kind of verse that really needs to be dealt with properly. Uh, and just to show us that this fortune cookie method can be pretty limited. So that was like my first phase. And then when I sort of started to get into theology a little bit, uh, one of the buzzwords was context, context, context. Uh, And this became kind of like a special move for for theology dudes. And, um, you know, we'd come across something like Jeremiah 29, 11, would say, hey, look, think about the context. This verse, it's not about you. It's written to an exiled people uh, to remind them of a covenant. And clearly the you in this passage is communal. So stop being so self-focused and learn some Bible. So uh, look, that was a, that was a, that was a fun phase. Um, and context is important. Um, and we do need to pay attention to it to understand what it's saying. But the danger is with, with majoring too much on context that we can kind of treat the Bible a little bit like an English project. Um, We can major on the analysis and uh, start to fall into the trap of believing that the Bible is something actually controlled by us. And it's really not. When we do that, the danger is we can miss the deep experience of having our imaginations shaped by the words and the images in the text as we open our heart. Take care then how you hear. Now, the history of uh, Bible reading in the West is a long and winding tale that all of us in one way or another are influenced by. Around 500 years ago, Luther, who was the main initiator of the Protestant Reformation, um, insisted 
that it is the right and responsibility of every individual to read the Bible for themselves. And this is great because then we all get to do it on our own time. We don't have to go to church and listen to someone else do it. It's available to us all the time. And that's amazing. But one of the unintentional uh, consequences of that is that the Bible was kind of degraced or removed from the realm of grace. Or another way of saying it is it's removed from the understanding of the Bible as the event of communing with God in a special way. What happened is over time, the Bible got to be seen as just another book on the bookshelf next to every other book. Um, next to your recipe books or next to Harry Potter. And it stopped to be seen as this really special place of meeting with God. And in the, imagines, uh, in the imaginations of the West, it became less of an encounter with God's words and to be kind of seen like literature, like every other book. And this was actually a monumental change. And so we have inherited this tendency in the West uh, to treat the Bible like a frog in a science lab where we get to turn it over, we get to take control of it, we get to dissect it, we get uh, to look at the information and poke and prod it and extract things from it. But the thing is, it's actually there to form us. It's meditation literature that actually wants to poke and prod us. It's there to get under our skin to give us thoughts and language, to give us metaphors and pictures to see and hear with, is to shape our imaginations and our lenses on the world. So take care then how you hear. Eugene Peterson talks about this tension, saying, reading is an immense gift, but only if the words are assimilated, taken into the soul, eaten, chewed, gnawed, received in an unhurried delight. Passionate words of men and women spoken in ecstasy can end up flattened on the page and dissected with an impersonal eye. Wild words wrung out of excruciating suffering can be skinned and stuffed, mounted and labeled as museum specimens. The danger in all reading is that words be twisted into propaganda or reduced to information mere tools and data. We silence the living voice and reduce words to what we can use for convenience and profit. We're really good at making sure we listen to the right things, but Jesus says, be careful how you hear. It's a dialogue. And this has actually been a really hard lesson for me. Um, I am someone that likes to read a lot. I like to read fast. I like to conquer information. I like to learn as much as I can. And I'm pretty sure it's basically driven by a desire to feel powerful and to feel in control of knowledge. Um, I basically want to be known as knowledgeable uh, to avoid this uh, really um, chronic feeling in my soul of feeling ignorant in some way. Um, I want to be respected and significant. And deep down, I probably think this is a bit of an idol and it causes me to inhale books in an unhealthy way. So because of my default disposition, meditating, reading slowly like this feels dumb. <laughs> I kind of just want to say, cool, Jesus. Uh, don't 
you know, make sure that I'm the good soil. Got it. Cool. I can move on to the juicy stuff. I've got a master's in theology. You can, you can trust me with the heavy stuff. It's all good. But no, you cannot master the words of God. They keep on speaking. They keep on getting at you. They keep convicting and they keep encouraging you and they keep growing you and showing you things you'd never seen before. God keeps speaking. So take care then how you hear. A month ago, I had uh, quite a powerful experience um, as I was reading scripture in sort of like a, a more meditative way. Now, I've probably read the story of uh, Jesus's warning to the lawyers in Luke 11 hundreds of times. He says this, he says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so I was reading this in my quiet time, and I was thinking to myself, man, those lawyers, what a pack of losers. <laughs> I am uh, stoked that I don't operate like that. Uh, and uh, sort of impressed by my own sense of purity, I decided to start praying. And uh, I felt directed to pray for this cert certain person. Uh, with this verse percolating in the back of my head. And as I brought this person before God, I was suddenly made aware of all the resentments that I had towards this person that I was not aware of. They weren't big things, um, but there were just lots of things that I wish they were doing better, kind of wanted them to improve their core roles. There's just quite a bit of bitterness there. I was holding them to an unreasonable standard, um, and I was having to go at them in my mind quite a lot, and suddenly Jesus' words were super alive to me in a way they weren't before. And when I heard these words again, you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Suddenly these words were speaking right at me and it was alive. And I was cut. <laughs> um, and actually it went on to transform the way that I held this relationship. And it was brutal, but it was real. And I loved it because in that moment, God drew close to me and he was speaking through scripture and it was a painful process. But then take care then how you hear, because this is what we get. We get this closeness. And this is what actually what the, the experience that scripture is designed for. It's designed to be sat with, to roll around in our brains. It's angular. It comes at you in unexpected ways. It's, it's non-linear and alive. And if you don't get it at first, but keep chewing it over anyway, you're actually doing it right. The key thing here is this. Scripture is not just God's information. It's the site of God's communication. To meditate on scripture is to really listen. To dwell on these words that have been forming God's people for hundreds of years. It's to reside within them, joining a long line of readers and listeners. 
It's to trace the patterns and the repetitions and the themes and the repeated imagery and to let the words shape us, to think alongside them. When we meditate on scripture, we're being formed. Now, if I can make another big call, we're actually coming into contact with a deep reality that the text is showing us. We'll never exhaust all the Bible's meaning. Like a diamond turning in the light, it keeps becoming new to us. The ambiguities aren't barriers, they're calls to go deeper. That's the Word of God, and it requires trust and patience. It means that we need to open ourselves up to listen, feeling the comfort and the discomfort, the clarity and the confusion, to be inspired and troubled because it is God that we are meeting. So take care then how you hear. And this is what the ancient practice of Lectio Divina is all about. There's kind of four stages that emerged in the, in the third century and it's kind of carried on. The four stages are Lectio, Meditatio, Oratio and Contemplatio. And I'll just break those down really quickly. The first stage is Lectio, which is you take a passage, it can be just a small chunk, probably smaller the better, so you're really chewing it over. And as you're reading it, you're asking, what stands out to you? And as you're doing that, you're trusting that the Spirit is highlighting something to you, even if you don't understand why. So this is your first reading of the Scripture. The second stage is Meditatio. And as you're reading this stage, you're thinking mainly about those things that have been highlighted and you're asking yourself, why has this been highlighted to me? And as you read slowly, you're really asking this question and really uh, putting your spirit in dialogue with the text and letting that friction and that, and that close, uh, closeness really speak to one another. The second one, uh, sorry, the third one is Horatio. How are you inviting me to live? So in prayer, you're asking God, what are you really asking me to do here out of this? And finally, contemplatio, which is the stage where you're offering that up as a form of surrender to God and saying, actually, this transformation work that's going on here, it begins with you. You're the one driving it. And so we don't jump too quickly to application, but we just rest in the sense that actually we're being caught up in something bigger than ourselves. So just to end, what we're going to do is just look at the first chunk of Psalm 1 and use this as an example of how Lectio Divina might work. So let me read it to you as the first stage of Lectio Divina, so the Lectio part where we take a passage and see what stands out and see what stands out. The first chunk of the psalm says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. And so you'd slowly think about that and let yourself churn it over. The second stage, meditatio, we might start to look at some of the words that are popping out at us. 
You know, when I read this passage, I look at it and think, there are some key action words in this bit. There's, there's walk, and then there's, um, there's stand, and then there's sit. And it's this idea that maybe perhaps we can kind of go along with something we shouldn't at first, and then eventually we might position ourselves with people or in situations we shouldn't. And eventually, if we let it carry on, we might settle in and sit in that place that we shouldn't either. And so there's almost like this progression of getting ourselves into something, into grooves that we shouldn't in life. So I do that meditatio part, and I ask, why has that been highlighted to me? What things have I been doing? In what ways have I positioned myself or started to settle into things that I shouldn't? And I sit with that, and I'm patient with it, and I listen and I wonder what actually am I doing that God might, to, might need to convict me of that I hadn't thought of before, trusting that the Spirit is doing its work. And then thirdly, we've got a ratio where it's the prayer part. We're asking God, how are you inviting me to live out of that? What maybe what might you need me to reject or resist or walk away from or change or um, repent of even? What do I need to do here? What changes do I need to make? And fourthly, contemplatio, after all of that, you have a time of rest and surrender and realize that actually it's God that's initiating and completing all of this within you, that this is happening to you, that you are not the agent, you are just the willing participant. And this is the dynamic at play if we let it happen to us. So take care then how you hear. Let me just pray to end. Lord, we have uh, so many different ways of engaging with Scripture and so many different feelings we have when we come to the Bible. Lord, we ask that um, as we as a community learn to sit and chew over Scripture and use it as meditation literature, that you really would meet us there, that your Spirit would be in those times speaking and revealing yourself and showing yourself to be alive in this text. Thank you for this deep well that we have in the Bible. And I pray that you would teach us to put ourselves under it and teach us to walk more and step with your spirit as we do that. Amen.